بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله uh, Does anyone know what lesson this is? Is this four or five? I don't think I've been marking Yeah, neither have I Okay So, we are working our way to page 61. Uh, because at page 61 we get to uh, uh, working our way there. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're yeah, working our way to 61 uh, because 61 looks at the meanings within the Shama'il. Uh, looking at each feature of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and therefore between page 39 where we left off and 61 we're going to try to go we're not going to rush through it but we also don't want to stick at one sentence and spend an hour because otherwise we'll be here for the next five years so we left off on page 39 so some parts of, of this uh, section between 39 and 60 we may go through somewhat quickly. Uh, other parts we'll focus on, but you never know. We may just get stuck on one part and elaborate, but bismillah. So we were reading this section last class, and on page 39, at the second to the last paragraph, right towards the middle, after the poetry, the sheikh says, the Prophet ﷺ was sent at a time when a long period had lapsed without messengers. Now, does anyone know what that time period is called? The Fatra, right. So you have the time of Sayyidina Isa السلام, and then you have the time of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. This was about 500 odd years. And the this time period in which there was no messenger on earth this time period is called the Fatra and the people in that time are generally called Ahlul Fatra the people of the the gap the period in between messengers and last week in our Ask the Imam session we talked a bit about the Ahlul Fatra because someone had asked what is the status of the people born in that time right uh, there's no messenger so what is the ruling on those people in terms of their status in the afterlife and a, there's a lot of detail about that and there's different views but anyhow this, this the, the author says here that the Prophet ﷺ was sent at a time when a long period had lapsed without messengers now something I discovered just the other day Maybe I, sh maybe I can share it in the group. Um, there was a non-Muslim who was trying to uh, undermine Islam and attack it. And he thought he found something. But it turns out to be pointing in the opposite direction. Uh, I don't know the exact year when it was discovered. 
but it was recent and it was published in an academic journal. They found in Yemen a, a stone, you know, it was like in the mountains, it was a large stone, and on that stone were inscriptions cut into the rock written in the ancient Himyari language. So this is uh, a, a very basic form of Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, something or the other, is Himyari. The letters uh, are not like Arabic letters, but the sounds are pretty much like Arabic in terms of the three-letter roots and whatnot. And it was dated to about 500 or so years after the age of Isa ibn Maryam. So this is right before the birth of the Prophet And the inscription was made by some Himyari Jews. And in this inscription there's a dua. And when you look at the dua uh, and the root letters in it, they are saying, uh, they use the word Rabb, right? It has that root. Uh, and then they address themselves as Bani Israel, and they say, we ask for your Rahmah uh, by the rank of the, the praised one, the praised one. And then the roots of the Himyari language for the praised one is uh, Im, hard Ha, Im, D. So, Mim, Ha, Mim, Dal. This is before the birth of the Prophet wasallam. And it has a prayer that contains that, the name of this awaited prophet to come to them. And they're, they're asking Allah Ta'ala. And this is uh, confirmed in the Qur'an. Because in Surah Al-Baqarah we have the verse where Allah describes how the Jews of Yathrib would be in fights with the Aws and the Khazraj. And before their battles they would make dua to Allah asking Allah to give them victory against these idol worshippers, uh, asking, you know, by the rank of the one whom you have pro- uh, promised to send at the end of time. And Allah Ta'ala mentions that in the Qur'an. وَكَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Right? فَلَمَّا They used to seek victory over those people uh, by means of that kind of dua. And when that promised one came to them, whom they know, kafarubi, they rejected him. So that's confirmed in the Qur'an as well. Uh, but that was written in a time of fetra, right? But people, some people knew of this coming prophet. So he says here, he spoke with the truth and called to Allah without fear of the creation. He stood alone and said, O people, you are in error. Your religions are false except for the way of Islam. And he's paraphrasing the basic da'wah. He continued to oppose them and to call them, and Allah protected him from them. Until the deniers fled and his followers increased. The religion is continuing to increase, manifest and elevate by the blessings of his secrets and the dawn of his lights. For his light is the origin of every light, his spirit, intellect, gnosis, knowledge and forbearance is the repository of all of those characteristics. The Prophet ﷺ said the first thing that Allah created was my light and in another narration my spirit and in a further narration my intellect. The indication to all of this is that he is the all-encompassing ocean, the glittering light 
and the flowing help. May Allah bless him and grant him peace. Now this section, we could actually sit and discuss this for days. And we're going to come to this, this passage. He talks about it in a whole chapter. So uh, where, what are these narrations? Where do they come from? Um, these are generally seen as weak narrations, but they are supported by certain verses of Qur'an and other uh, sound narrations. And there's a certain way we understand them. So uh, the Hadith of Jabir, the Hadith of Ali, uh, and other narrations. So we're going to pause on that one and come to it because there's a whole chapter about it later. So we'll get to that. He then he quotes uh, Imam al-Busayri. Uh, here it says Busiri. You can say Busiri or Busayri with Tasghir. Uh, he quotes Imam Busayri, who's the author of what poem? Do you know? Um, he has two famous poems. The Burda, the Burda and the Hamziya. So the Burda is the most famous of his two poems. Uh, it has dozens of uh, commentaries, uh, shuruh, written on it. And it, is, it was a part of the curriculum in many of the Madaris uh, hundreds of years ago. And uh, for example, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, the great Hadith scholar, uh, he cites that in his uh, Thabat, meaning his catalog of works that he studied with his teachers as a part of the curriculum back then. Imam Sheikh al-Islam Zakari al-Ansari has a commentary. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, there is a commentary that was translated uh, in 2015 uh, by yours truly, a commentary from Sheikh Ahmed ibn Ajiba al-Hassani. Uh, the only English translation of a commentary on the poem uh, to, to date. And in this poem, he, he quotes him. Uh, I'll read you the Arabic first. وَكُلُّهُمْ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ مُلْتَمِسٌ غَرْفًا مِنَ الْبَحْرِ أَوْ رَشْفًا مِنَ الْدِيَامِ فَهْوَ الَّذِي تَمَّ مَعْنَاهُ وَصُورَتُهُ ثُمَّ اصْطَفَاهُ حَبِيبًا بَارِئُ النَّسَمِ and all of them are receiving from the Messenger of Allah a handful from an ocean or a drop of rain. For he is the one whose inward and outward was perfected, and Allah, the originator of spirits, chose him as his beloved. This is a very uh, famous uh, couple of lines from the Burda, where the author, Sheikh uh, Imam Sharaf al-Din al-Busayri, is saying that all of the prophets... Uh, were receiving something from him insofar as they were his representatives, uh, insofar as they are part of this community of Anbiya and Rusul, and they took the, the Ahad, the covenant in the realm of spirits that they would support him and profess Iman in him should he appear during their lifetimes. And it also applies to people after the Prophet right? Everyone is receiving something of his guidance from the mu'minun, from the people of Iman. They receive from him. Some receive more than others. Some receive more than others in terms of knowledge and practice. Some, as he says, غَرْفًا مِنَ الْبَحْرِ You know, handfuls from the ocean. أَوْ رَشْفًا مِنَ الْدِيَامِ You know, drops of dew. Regardless, people receive uh, from his guidance, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. فَهُوَ الَّذِي تَمَّ مَعْنَاهُ وَصُورَتُهُ And he is the one whose uh, inward and outward was completed. Uh, and then Allah chose him, he who is the originator of the spirits, chose him as his beloved. So he says everything, 
Their lights, knowledge, actions, and states are from Him, for He is the origin and everything else are His branches. It has been related that the Prophet wasallam has said, or here it says, whoever guides to good has the reward like the one who performed it. So what he's describing here is what we call the chain of goodness, right? So here we are uh, on this day. What's today's date? August 9th. 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 August 9th, 2023. Uh, Muharram 22, yes. Uh, 1445. We're sitting here in a gathering of knowledge. Uh, we, we open the class with the praise of Allah and remembrance of Allah. Uh, we learn our fiqh, we learn our beliefs, we learn our character, and we try to practice all of that. Where do we get that from? Right? We got it from our teachers. Where did those teachers get it from? Right? They're transmitting Quran, they're transmitting hadith, they're translating, uh, transmitting hikam, you know, wise sayings and applications of guidance that they receive from their teachers who in turn received it from their teachers that has a starting point it goes all the way back to the sahaba and they received it from the prophet so he is the supreme teacher in that regard which means he's the one who guided to these things therefore whoever uh, guides to goodness is like the one who does them Right? They get the reward. Think about this, subhanAllah. You know, if you teach someone something of benefit and they act on it, you get the reward of their actions without it diminishing their reward in the, in the, in the, lightest, in the slightest. And you learned it from someone, and they get the reward of your, your good deeds that they taught you without it diminishing your reward. And they learned it from someone, Right, so it all culminates in the person of the Prophet ﷺ. What that means, subhanAllah, is that every single salat, every single sadaqah, every single dhikr, every single act of obedience that we practice, and our parents and friends and associates practice, all of which came from him, ﷺ, he receives the reward for it. So imagine how many Muslims are praying right now in the world. The ajr of all of that salawat goes back. He, he receives that ajr because he's the one who taught it to people. So this is what he means when he talks about their lights, knowledge, actions, and states are from him. He's the origin, and everything else uh, are its branches. So he receives uh, the reward for all of these things because he is ad-dalu al-khair, the one who guided to goodness. So now he goes on to talk about uh, some of the meanings of kawthar, right? Now, most Muslims know that chapter because it's the smallest, one of the smallest. Inna al-kawthar. We have given you kawthar. And well, we'll read what he says and then unpack this a little bit because it's a very beautiful reflection. It is related from Anas radiallahu anhu who said, once, while the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was amongst us, he went into a state. And here he says, lost consciousness. Uh, don't, don't think it's just fainting, right? That's not what it means. Uh, it is basically a state of receiving wahi, right? When you read in Sahih al-Bukhari, one of the earlier chapters in the collection, 
uh, how revelation began, Kayfa Bada al Wahi. He has narrations which describe the different experiences of the Prophet ﷺ when he received the wahi. And there were different kinds of experiences. Um, all of them were heavy. All of them were heavy. Uh, and that is because Allah Ta'ala affirms this in the Quran that we shall give you, so nulqi alayka qawlan thaqila. We will give you a heavy word. A heavy word meaning the revelation of divine speech. It's a heavy word, right? Uh, which is why it's easier for young people to memorize it than it is for people who understand or who are older because there's a maturity. So this loss of consciousness is not the conventional loss of consciousness that we think of fainting or passing out. It's a heavy state of receiving the revelation of Allah's kalam. He then lifted his head and was smiling. We asked, what is it that makes you smile, O Messenger of Allah? The Prophet ﷺ said, a surah was revealed to me just now. He then recited, uh, translated here as, to you we have granted al-kawthar. Therefore, turn to your Lord in prayer and sacrifice, for he who hates you will be cut off. Uh, I would translate this a little bit differently. Uh, I would translate this chapter uh, as, Indeed, we have granted you supreme abundance. All right, here, Al-Kawthar. Therefore, uh, direct your prayers to your Lord and sacrifice. Indeed, the one who disparages you is cut off. Is cut off. Abtar. He then said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Do you know what Al-Kawthar is? Now, this is interesting because the Arabs of the time, they knew what Kawthar meant. It comes from Kathra, from abundance. But the word kawthar, is st- it's still ambiguous what exactly is meant by kawthar. So they gave the answer when asked, what does it mean? They said, Allahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. Allah and his messenger know best. Now we, we actually talked about this last week and they asked the imam. Because someone had asked, well, what's the ruling on saying that now? Right after the passing of the Prophet So we gave a detailed answer showing that uh, that answer is always true. And that the Sahaba continued to say that after his passing, as well as the Tabi'un, and uh, the scholars as well. They would advise that if you're asked a question you don't know the answer to, to say, Allahu wa Rasulu A'lam. So this is a common answer uh, that's forever valid. And you'll find dozens and dozens of hadith where the Sahaba are saying this, Allah and his messenger know best. Uh, even for basic things. One hadith, he says, do you know what day this is? And it was a Friday, and they still say, Allah and His Messenger know best. He said, is it not a Friday? Do you know what month this is? It was Dhul-Hijjah, and they still said, Allah and His Messenger know best. So that he asked them, what, do you know what Kawthar is? And they said, Allah and His Messenger know best. The Prophet ﷺ said, it is a river that my Lord has promised me. There is an abundance of good upon it. It is a lake 
or hawd, which my community will arrive at on the day of judgment or standing. Its vessels are like the number of the stars. A servant will be driven away from them, and I will say, O Lord, he is from my community. It will be said, you do not know what he innovated after you. Now, this is one of several hadith about Kawthar, and this one describes it as a river of paradise, uh, alternatively, a, a tributary or source for the hawd, the, the pond uh, at which the believers gather on the day of judgment. Either before the crossing of the bridge or after, uh, there's different opinions about that. We've talked about in the Lives of Man class. And this is, every prophet has a hawd, a, basically a watering spot where they gather with their communities. So the hawd of the Prophet wasallam, he says his, uh, uh, his vessels are like the number of the stars. And then he talks about people who will be driven away from the hawd. So people who will try to go to it, who are from the ummah, but they will be driven away from it and not allowed to drink from it. And he says that when this happens, he will say, Oh my Lord, my, these are from my ummah, these are from my community. And it will be said to him, uh, you don't know what they uh, innovated after you. Now what does that mean? The ulama offer different interpretations about this. Uh, some of them say that it refers to uh, people who, after the passing of the Prophet wasallam, they began to uh, do things that altered the, the deen that he brought. And without getting into too much history or controversy, uh, a lot of them applied it to the changes that took place, say 40, 50 years after his passing, where you have the passing of the Khilafah in the 30-year period to a monarchy where different changes were made to the Sharia. Where, uh, yeah, so that some of the ulama say this applies to those people. Uh, but it can apply to anybody who tries to alter or change the, the, the deen of the Prophet wasallam. And this is the one hadith recorded by Muslim. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that day, the day of judgment. Anas radiallahu anhu said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, whilst I was traveling in paradise, and this is in Tirmidhi, and it's referring to the Isra al Mi'raj, whilst I was traveling in paradise, a river was shown to me which was surrounded by domes of pearls. I asked the angel, What is this? He replied, this is Al-Kawthar, which Allah has given you. He then struck the soil with his hand and brought out musk. I was then raised to the furthest lot tree, Sidratul Muntaha, and I saw a tremendous light. So this hadith is in Tirmidhi, and it describes uh, our understanding that uh, you have the hawd, and then you have the tributary from which it, it originates, which is a river in paradise. And surrounding that river, you have these large domes uh, of pearl. And the soil is finer than the finest musk. You think of musk as maybe this liquid perfume. But the original musk is actually from... Have you ever seen... The gazelle, right. From the gazelle. 
so the actual musk, how, what is it, how do you produce this stuff? It comes from a certain gland of a gazelle. That gland is taken out and then it sits in a container for a while and kind of ferments a little bit and they add some oil to it and it becomes a thick mash and it, it looks like dark black soil. It smells very bad in the beginning because it has to go through a process. When you smell it in that form, it smells like urine. It is not a nice smell at all. But over time, it changes. And as they mash it up and prepare it, it becomes this fine musk. So the original musk looks like a soil. And here, the soil of paradise is finer than musk in its smell. Uh, so that's the hadith in Tirmidhi. Now, I think he does... Okay. Another thing about Kothar is that we, we have the understanding that Kothar is the river of paradise from which there is this tributary leading to the hold upon uh, which the believers gather on the Day of Judgment. Another meaning of Kothar is supreme abundance in every sense. So not just the, the river and not just the hold, but supreme abundance. And uh, of all people, uh, one of the more beautiful tafasir uh, of this chapter, of, of all people, is uh, Sayyid Qutb. Right? Sayyid Qutb, uh, he's well known, uh, was a bit of a... He was first a man of letters, an adib, uh, his, his specialty was Arabic literature. He wasn't an alim, but he was very learned, and he had a very uh, skilled pen. He was very skilled in the Arabic language and in writing beautiful literature. So when he became more religious, he applied that literary skill to tafsir of the Qur'an. So his tafsir, fi ghilal al-Qur'an, it's not really a tafsir in the conventional sense. He's not really a mufassir in that classical sense, but he pinned these reflections on the Qur'an that were compiled into this work in the shade of the Qur'an. And his tafsir of Surah Kawthar is really beautiful. I would advise you to all look it up. It's in English. You can find it online. And he talks about the meaning of this supreme abundance. You know, that everything to which he called gives us abundance. Yani abundance in character, abundance in knowledge, abundance in guidance, uh, his sunnah, his character, his ways, his states, all reflect abundance given to him by Allah Ta'ala. And in one of the tafasir of Kawthar, uh, from some sound narrations, it also applies to his progeny. So the part of the kawthar given to him is that Allah Ta'ala gave him a very beautiful family and that family continues to uh, carry those teachings and those lights. And this is a part of the kawthar. That makes sense when you look at the background behind the revelation of the, of the chapter uh, and the last verse because uh, the... Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam did he have sons? He did, but they passed away. So in the Arab mindset, uh, 
because they look at lineage being patrilineal, going through the father exclusively, they begin to say, ah, Muhammad is abtar. Abtar means he's cut off. His lineage is cut off because he has no more sons. They passed away, right? All he has are his daughters. And this chapter was revealed as a response to those who said his line is cut off. And the beginning verse, إِنَّا So, supreme abundance. And at the end, what does he say? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِنَّ شَانِئَكَ Those who disparage you with your lineage, disparage you in other ways. That person is abtar. They're the one who's cut off. In the, in the big picture, they're the ultimate... They're ultimately cut off. So the kawthar isn't just the river. It isn't just the hawd. It's supreme abundance in everything that he gave to the community. It is supreme abundance in uh, the beautiful family that he gave him that carried on his legacy, that carried his character and guidance and spread Islam throughout the world. And those who disparage him, uh, they're cut off. So... That's a part of the kawthar. The kawthar as the, the abundance uh, in the guidance that uh, loosens the things that used to be restricted for the previous nations. So there's abundance in that there's sa'ah, there's expansion. It's not overly restrictive. The sharia of the Prophet is not so restrictive as some of the previous shara'ir that were given to previous prophets. There's expansion in that way. And kawthar, abundance, you know, it ties in with his very names. What, is, what are the two most famous names? Muhammad and Ahmad. So Muhammad is uh, ism maf'ul. Right? It means the one who is praised abundantly. So there's, there's abundance in him being praised by others. And the name Ahmed uh, has two possible meanings uh, because it's ism uh, tafdil. It means either the one who praises Allah more than anyone else. So abundance in praising Allah more than anyone else. Or abundance in being praised more than anyone else, right? So Ahmed carries both of these possibilities. The majority of the scholars say Ahmed here means he is the most praising of Allah. But it can also mean uh, he is Ahmed in the sense that he is praised more than anyone else among creation. So there's abundance reflected even in his two uh, most famous names, Muhammad and Ahmed. And the hadith says that he is referred to as Ahmad in the heavens and Muhammad on earth. So in the angelic realm, he is referred to as Ahmad. And in the uh, physical, earthly realm, he is referred to as Muhammad. So, uh, moving on to the next narration. He says, it is related from Jabir radiallahu anhu who said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, the fire will not touch a Muslim who has seen me or has seen the one who saw me. Talha then said, 
I have seen Jabir ibn Abdullah. And Musa said, I have seen Talha. Yahya said, and Musa said to me, and you have seen me, and we hope for its fulfillment from Allah. So this narration is in, in a Tirmidhi. And uh, what we want to say right at the outset is that we should pay attention to the first phrase. The fire will not touch a Muslim who has seen me. A Muslim, right? It's not saying that anybody who's seen him because uh, plenty of people saw him and they didn't believe and they go to hell, right? So we understand that this is with the condition of Iman, Al-Wafa, Wal-Mawt al-Islam, you know, uh, believing in him, fulfilling uh, his guidance and dying as Muslims, right? And this is a special favor. Uh, those who saw the Prophet وسلم, but did not have Iman, they don't receive this favor. And we see, for example, the Quraysh who rejected him, they saw him, but they saw not Muhammadun Rasulullah. They saw uh, Muhammad uh, Yatimu Quraysh, you know, just this orphan boy. So they see him through this limited lens. They didn't see him as uh, Muhammad Rasulullah as they should truly see him. So this is a favor. It is related from Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha who said, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would say, and he is correct, a prophet is never taken until he sees his place in paradise. He is then given a choice. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha then said, when the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uh, was pla- uh, placed his head in my lap. He lost consciousness and then woke up. He lifted his gaze towards the roof and then said, O oh Allah, to the highest company, Ar-Rafiq al-A'la. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha said, I said, he has not chosen this. I remembered the hadith which the Prophet sallallahu used to mention and he was true in his words, a prophet is never taken until he sees his place in paradise. He is then given a choice. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha said, the last words that the prophet spoke were, O oh Allah, with the highest company. The three have related it, including Tirmidhi, that the highest company are the prophets who reside in the highest of the Illiyin. So I, I'm not too sure the connection between this section and the section on Kawthar. Uh, you know, sometimes authors they just write by what, whatever inspires them in the moment. I don't, I don't know the connection between the two, but this is uh, towards the end of this section, uh, ending on page forty-two, before he goes into a new section about the miracles. Uh, the point here is the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was given a choice, and he chose that highest company once the message was fulfilled once everything was carried out. And no others get the choice, right? You don't get to choose, okay, when do you, when do you want to go to Jannah? <laughs> this was given to him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he, he made that choice. The, the next section, it's not really a chapter, uh, but it's a section in this general section of the book before we get to page 60, I think it's 61, 
and it's titled The Miracles of the Prophet Now he doesn't limit the discussion of miracles to this section. There's a whole section further on that discusses the miracles in more detail. But it seems like he's just presenting uh, some general miracles that illustrate the specialness of the Prophet before going into detail. And he, li- he, he has a bullet point list here of about a dozen things uh, before he talks about the character of the Prophet So we won't spend a long, a long time going through each of these because they'll come later. Uh, and it seems, and a lot of them is best, but it seems that what he's describing here as miracles uh, is not specifically the technical definition of miracles. Now, what's the word for miracle in Arabic? Mu'ajiza. But there's another word too. There's another word for miracles. Start. Yeah, that's more of the theological definition, right? But so we talk about miracles in English. Uh, In Arabic, there are two words that reflect that word. Right. What do you call those? Karamat. All right, so karamat and mu'jizat. So in Arabic, you have words that they're almost synonymous to each other in their usage, and they only become different when you put them together, right? So bir and taqwa are paired. وَتَعَاوَنُوا عَلَى الْبِرِّ taqwa Piety and piety, right? Now, if bir is by itself, it's not paired with taqwa. Bir is goodness and piety. When taqwa is by itself, it is goodness and piety. Right? They have different roots. But when they're paired together, they obviously have a different meaning from each other. So bir is one thing and taqwa is something else. In which case bir refers to uh, acts of goodness and taqwa refers to the inner consciousness of Allah in fear of Allah and staying away from haram. Right? So that's when they're paired together. But when they're by themselves, standing alone, they both kind of refer to the same thing. So bir is goodness and piety, and taqwa is goodness and piety. Karamat and mu'jizat uh, are somewhat similar because they're both miracles. Now, when you pair them together, the difference is mu'jizat are for the prophets, and karamat offer others, right? When you keep them separate, they're almost interchangeable, uh, except from a technical perspective. Right? You wouldn't say that this pious Muslim was given a mu'jiza from Allah, right? Because that mu'jiza is from i'jaz, in the ajiz, meaning something that is a response to a challenge that can't be replicated that becomes a proof of prophethood, right? It comes from ajiz, inability. Uh, karama, so you, you wouldn't say that a wali, a, a, a friend of God, a saintly person, receives mu'jizat. You would say he receives karamat, which are uh, noble gifts, honors given to them by Allah that are miraculous in nature. It's not a response to a challenge in, in establishing the truthfulness of prophethood. I mean, I, I was 
Yeah. So we wouldn't say that anyone who's not a prophet receives a mu'jiza. You'd say they receive a karama. But when we come to the Prophet ﷺ and look at his miracles, we can actually call them mu'jizat or karamat, right? Just linguistically, right? Because it's a gift. It's something Allah gifted him by which he honored him and it's a break from empirical phenomena and the patterns of existence. So when he says miracles here, uh, you know, my understanding is that it's just the general gifts that Allah gave him, uh, many of which were miraculous in nature that could not be replicated and establish the truthfulness of his prophethood. Uh, the reason why I say that is because the very first one, he says the prophet's truthfulness in everything he brought and informed of us. Uh, informed us of. Now, that doesn't fit in the definition of a marjiza, right? Because that's the definition of a marjiza, really. So it's the gift that Allah gave him that the signs of the truth of his revelation to him were manifested upon his hands through these miracles that established his truthfulness and these things could not be replicated, they could not be countered. Um, so that establishes his truthfulness. And that's a gift Allah gave him, right? He didn't call people to truth with no signs confirming his truthfulness, right? So that's uh, a gift Allah gave him. The next one, the splitting of the moon in two parts, Mu'jizah, clearly. The rocks greeting him, uh, would that be a mu'jiza? Uh, it could be in, in, in the broadest sense. But this was not uh, something brought forth as a challenge to others. The, the greeting of the rocks was actually before he received the Qur'an. So it doesn't fit in the category of mu'jiza. It fits in the category of irhas. Irhas meaning the signs and miracles that appeared before wahi that were, uh, what's the term we would use in English? Irhas is like the, uh, yeah, any, yeah, you could say premonitions. There's a, there's a term I, I, I coined years ago when I translated it. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and basically the signs or breaks with nature that presage, right, his coming revelation, right? So the honoring given to him before he received the wahi, the rocks greeting him with salam. The trees walking to him, right? that occurred after wahi, so that is the mu'jiza. The child speaking to him, mu'jiza. Yeah. So there's narrations like this, uh, narrations where the camels also communicated, yeah. right? And he, the complaining about the, their masters overburdening them with work. So being able to understand the communication of certain infant children or animals, right? There's some narrations to that effect. Yeah, this was. 
the trunk where the trunk uprooted itself and walked across. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was talking with some Bedouin man, and the Bedouin man issued this kind of challenge, and then that happened. Yeah. Uh, the testification of the lizard to his message. Uh, this is coming before Wahi, right? Uh, or right in the beginning of the Wahi, right? Right when he first received it. Uh, in the Sira works, you have in the in the larger ones like Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, others. They have in that early section when they talk about his early life, that period immediately after receiving the Quran, the immediate revelation, how some of the animals would greet him with salam and the rocks and some lizards and they're greeting him with the title of Rasulullah right? and also there's uh, narrations about uh, uh, jinn as well like yelling that and people are hearing it you know, like announcing the arrival of this final messenger there's a lot of narrations like that the next one, he says, the transformation of essences, such as the stick that was given to one of his companions, and it became a sword with which he fought until it broke. The reason why he says transformation of essences is because wood is wood and metal is metal. Iron is iron. Wood doesn't become iron and iron doesn't become wood. Right? For wood to become iron or vice versa, that is the transformation of essences, right? The, the essence of wood is different from the essence of iron. So if it transforms into some completely different essence, that is the creation of Allah Ta'ala in that moment. That is a break with the patterns. That is a miracle. And this occurred, it mentions in the hadith, uh, in the battle of, I think it was Uhud. Yeah. Uh, the army that was thirsty... And so the Prophet ﷺ placed his hand in a small amount of water and then water flowed from between his fingers. The army then drank and quenched their thirst. In a narration, they numbered 1,500. So this, is, this narration is actually mutawatir. So it's one of those hadith that are mass transmitted because it was witnessed by so many people. It is impossible for pe- people, uh, that many people to all uh, convene upon telling a lie. So this is one narration uh, of several that speak about this incident. And one of the things we learn from our teachers is that having spoken about kothar, they say that the most superior water is not kothar, it is the... They say that the most superior water is not kothar, but they say it is this water that flowed between his blessed fingers sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wa sallam. Um, this army was going towards in for a battle, right? Yeah, yeah, and they were running out of water. Yeah, I, we just read that hadith, I think, last week or the week before in the Rattle Salihim. Yeah, I don't know which battle it was. I don't recall. Uh, and there's a few narrations which don't mention a battle. They just mention it as an event that happened. And Imam al-Nawawi places it in Riyadh al-Salihin in the chapter on the permissibility of using uh, various types of utensils for drinking water or using water. 
because the hadith mentions that they were collecting it in a large stone container that was, you can say it was kind of etched out of, the, of a large stone where they would hold water. It went into this large container. And he uses that as a proof that you can use stone containers for water. It doesn't just have to be some other item. Um, food was presented in a pot and the Prophet ﷺ continued to invite people who ate from it and then left having been completely satisfied. The people numbered a thousand and five hundred or more. Uh, this is the hadith of Jabir radiallahu anhu and there's two narrations of this occurring um, and there's narrations about this occurring with, with milk as well. There's quite a few. Um, that's a long narration too. Um, and the Prophet ﷺ would inform his people of past and future events which would then come true exactly as he had spoken of them. So these are uh, a summary of some of the miracles and gifts Allah gave his Prophet ﷺ. He quotes Imam Busayri who said, And the Prophet has spoken of it. How many hidden secrets of the unseen has he brought forth? The the ilm of the, of the Prophet ﷺ has been discussed at great length by the scholars. Uh, perhaps the, the most detailed book is Jala'ul Qulub of Sheikh Muhammad bin Jafar Katani in two volumes, where he talks about the extensive knowledge of the Prophet ﷺ and how Allah continued to increase him in knowledge and how he spoke about past events and current events and future events, all of which were disclosed to him by his Lord. Uh, and you know, these narrations have been collected into independent works, just illustrating the vast knowledge of the Prophet And all of that knowledge is uh, wahhabi, it's all bestowed by Allah Ta'ala. Uh, nothing of the Prophet is what we say, thati or intrinsic. It's all given to him by Allah Ta'ala, right? Sure. When he was reading the miracles of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, after explaining the things, he said that for Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we can call these the Ramad or Mojizat. Both can go, right? Both. Yeah. This or that. Yeah. This is, this is, this is my, my struggle. <laughs> because this is a book written to be inspirational in nature. It's not a theological textbook, but I'm very linear and I like to organize things in my head and to be very technically precise. So when I see miracles at, as the, the header and then the, the first line says his truthfulness in everything that he brought and informed us of, that truthfulness itself is not technically a miracle according to the definition of a mu'jiza. So when I look at that and I look at the rocks greeting him, that wasn't a response to a challenge either. So I'm looking at the word miracles here, not as a, the, the technical meaning of miracles, as we learn about in Aqidah, but as the gifts, the bounties, the things Allah gave him, which are miraculous in nature, that are astounding, but not all of them are technically mu'jizat according to the way it's defined by the ulama of aqidah. That, that's all. Uh, we just like to be precise. Right. So the prophecies also, in a way, uh, his prophecies 
something special can come at the uh, <laughs> exactly happening and it's going on. Mm-hmm. So they also into more to Yeah. So I guess are you pointing out like the first if you read that the prophets Sallallahu truthfulness and everything that he brought and informed us of that could also be similar to the last point where he would inform his people of past and future events yeah which all came true so it's like a miracle in and of itself yeah yeah okay, I get it so not the very precise no. technical definition yeah. of marjiza but karama in the general sense both things with which Allah honored him and things with which he honored him that are miraculous breaks from nature so it encompasses a lot of things but they're all honorings right ways in which Allah honored his prophet now he ends this section uh, with a, a discussion on character and then leads into a new section about character so he says from among the many miracles is his tremendous character his tremendous character may peace, honor and blessings be upon him some of the scholars have said that whoever looks into his character excellences and unique attributes will know and acknowledge that it is a, divine, a lordly miracle which no one can possess without divine help and a lordly selection they will realize that such characteristics have not been present in a single person before the Prophet and this is how he opens the next section in this chapter with the header the character of the Messenger of Allah now this is a beautiful thing Um, all of the prophets and messengers have excellent character right None of the previous prophets and messengers have character flaws in the way that uh, we understand them. Allah has perfected their character, but they are not at the same level as the Prophet ﷺ. Now we mentioned in the last class that when you do a comparison, you have to be careful. You're not going to, to establish the superiority of the Prophet's character ﷺ by diminishing the character of the previous prophets right but if we do a comparison we see that his his character was one of absolute and perfect balance in every way whereas the other prophets who are also purified in their character they don't have the same exact balance meaning their natures tend towards one thing or the other but his was completely balanced now one of the ways you can look at this is from the the classical understanding uh, in the pre-Islamic Greek and Chinese uh, understanding of the temperaments the mizaj right and how they, re- they affect the person, how they reflect in their character. Uh, a few years ago, we did a, a Saturday program, a family night program, where we were talking about the temperaments. We are talking about the four temperaments, 
that was adopted by uh, Islamic scholars in understanding matters of human nature in medical sciences, where they looked at the, the four temperaments of human beings, where you have the uh, sanguine, the melancholic, the choleric, and the, what's the fourth one? Uh, so sanguine, melancholic, choleric, how am I missing the fourth? Sanguine, that's associated with uh, like, like air. Melancholic is associated with uh, water. Uh, choleric is associated with um, fire, I believe. Uh, and, hmm? I just remember wood. Yeah, wood's in Chinese. Uh, the Greeks don't have that. Um, anyhow, there's the four temperaments, right? This is, it's, a, it's a very complex way of looking at human nature uh, as a balance between different elements that reflect the character. So a person who is, usually we have our parents' temperaments. What's that? Phlegmatic, yes, phlegmatic. Phlegmatic is the person who likes to chill and eat and just relax all the time. You know, They're not too bothered by stuff. The choleric is the person who's very suited for leadership and you know, managing people and you know, they have that personality. Sanguine is the very outgoing, happy, chirpy, talkative center of attention. You know, the melancholic is the person who just likes to sit and read books and not mix with people. And, you know, they're more on the introvert side. So, you know, no one is 100% any of these, right? We all have aspects of each, uh, but some people have more than others. Generally, we tend to take the temperaments of our parents, not 50-50, but we tend to reflect both of their temperaments within a certain range. Uh, but no one has 100% of each. And the scholars say that when you look at each of these four temperaments, uh, what each of them means, uh, how they're reflected in character, no one has them all in perfect balance except the Prophet Meaning, he's not veering towards the melancholic or towards the sanguine or the choleric or the phlegmatic. He's not more of one than the other, but everyone else is. Some people are 90% phlegmatic, 10% whatever else. Some people 50, 50, more or less. 20, 80, 30, 70, everyone varies. But when you look at the temperaments and how they reflect in one's character and responses to things, no one's completely balanced in their character except the Prophet ﷺ. So even if you're not balanced, you can still have good character, but you have good character within the confines of that nature with which Allah created you. So if you are more melancholic, you're more introverted, you, you, still, you can still have good character. It's just that it manifests differently from someone who is more sanguine in nature who also has good character. So the, the person who's the life of the party, who's very outgoing, they can have good character, right? But the way that good character manifests will be different from the melancholic person who has good character or the phlegmatic person who has good character or the one who has 70-30. You know, 
human beings are very diverse in how they reflect those those natures and we're not we're not imprisoned by these categories right they change right because we go through seasons of life and seasons of the year and we're affected by our environment and our diet and our experiences so it's not like you can lock a person into a single category and say okay you're sanguine that's it you'll never be anything else it just means that that is the dominant aspect of their nature it tends to be more outgoing more open uh, more happy-go-lucky whereas others may be more melancholic if you're melancholic you'll, you'll like solitude you'll, you won't like to be in crowds uh, you are given to periods of deep introspection uh, and you don't like public speaking and being the center of attention right that doesn't mean you can't speak in public it doesn't mean you can't go to a party it just means you can't do it as much as a sanguine person a sanguine person can go to a party every single day they're fine they get energized by that the melancholic person when they go to a party it's like they plug in it's it's like their their battery juice drains quicker and they have to plug it in at home or somewhere else away from people to recharge so we're all different in that regard now some of their ulama i don't want to go too deep into this yeah they are intrinsic and there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophical uh, debates throughout Islamic history that underpin how we look at these things. The question about character itself, is character innate? And is it just jabilla, something that you're given that you really can't change? Yeah. Or is your character subject to change? Right? It's, it's, a, little bit of, it's a little bit of both. It's, it's complicated. It's not that simple. It's genetics. It is some you just got and some you learn and pick, right? Yeah. It's not one. Abu Bakr said, 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 you know, in, in, in so much as they received from the Prophet وسلم, and were imbibing the character that he uh, reflected, they're still reflecting aspects of it. Not reflecting it in the same sense he did because they do have their own individual natures. So someone who's very forceful and outgoing will reflect the prophetic character, the perfection of the character in their outgoing nature. The person who is exceedingly shy and withdrawn will reflect the prophetic character in their own nature as someone who is shyer and more of an introvert, right? And, and this is why they're so diverse in how they were. They're all receiving from the Prophet Sallallahu but go back to what Imam Busayri says. فَكُلُّهُ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ مُلْتَمِسٌ غَرْفًا مِنَ الْبَحْرِ 
Some received more than others. Uh, some received aspects more than others. And they each reflect the prophetic character within the confines of their own nature, their own temperament. Uh, Imam al-Sha'arani, he says in Al-Uhud al-Muhammadiyya that when you look at the Sahaba, radwanallahi alayhim, you see uh, in their character and behaviors, their ways of being, you see basically a reflection of uh, every possible way of being within the community. You have Muslims who are very studious, who are very much about ilm and intellectual development and knowledge, uh, and that's reflected in certain Sahaba more than others. Right? You have the ulama of the Sahaba, the mujtahidun of the Sahaba. You have Abu Huraira, you have Ibn Mas'ud, you have Ibn Abbas. Right? Then you have those who were more uh, geared towards isolation and ibadah. Abu Dharr al-Ghifari radiyallahu anhu. Right? And you have Muslims who are more like that. But then Imam Sharani says, you also have people who are kind of like those Sahaba who struggled with drinking alcohol. Right? You also have people within the Ummah who are kind of like those who uh, were just very anonymous. You don't know much about them. They're just kind of, they do their own thing. They come and go, and you don't know much about them. Right? So it's all reflected. Anyhow, we kind of got off track here a little bit. Um, the other point I was ma- making is that uh, if we look at the four temperaments as a blueprint and how character is reflected in one's temperament, uh, no one is completely balanced between all four of these where they're not veering more towards one than the other, uh, except for the Prophet Wasallam. Imam Suyuti mentions this in his book, At-Tibb al-Nabawi, on prophetic medicine. And he talks about the temperaments, and he says that no one is completely balanced except for him, Wasallam. And in the Islamic, the traditional Islamic model of health, it is actually to get your temperaments balanced as much as possible recognizing the inherent limitations of that because of your own nature. No one's going to attain that perfect balance, but health is basically working to get to that balance. If you are, uh, if you are veering too much towards one than, than the other, it could reflect in aspects of your character that are negative. So there is a connection between good health and character. There is a connection. And the point I wanted to mention is that uh, the reason why the character of the Prophet was so uh, miraculous is that it reflects complete balance. Right? It's not going too much this way or too much that way. Every single incident in which he deals with people is a reflection of the very best character you can have in that situation, right? So there are situations that call for being very forceful. And in that situation, that is good character. And then there are situations where being quiet and forbearing is the best character. 
The problem is if you are quiet and passive when you should be forthright and brave, that's not good character. And when you are forceful, when you should actually be softer, that's not good character either. So good character reflects in embodying the best state in the best moment, uh, the way it should be, right? And yeah, on the topic of, I think this is probably where we're going to end up stopping because maybe we should go into this, the nature of character. There's a long historical debate about, among scholars about the nature of character, what it is, is it amenable to change, or are you stuck with your own character? I think we see very clearly, because everyone here is a, a parent, you start to see the, the character of your child from within the first few months. And when you fast forward 10, 15 years, you see, of course, they've matured, but the same elemental character they had when they were a baby is still there. It's just an older version of it. That's ingrained in who they are, right? You can change behaviors. You can polish the rough parts of the character, but you are fundamentally who you are, right? If you are a born introvert, you're probably not going to have a, a good time in a career as a salesman, right? And if you are an outgoing salesman, you probably won't have a, a happy time if you work as a librarian in the back, organizing the books by yourself. It's just, it is what it is. So there's aspects of character that are innate. And then there's aspects or reflections of character that are amenable to change. So it's kind of like the nature versus nurture debate, right? Is it nature, is it nurture? Of course it's both, right? But in that nurturing, you're nurturing within the predetermined uh, patterns of character the person is born with. Now, uh, here, this section talks about the character of the Prophet wasallam, and what makes it so miraculous and wondrous is that it, it reflects uh, complete balance in every aspect. What's up? Shakira? Shakira, yeah. Am I saying correctly? Yeah. And some of the tafasir, they say Shakira refers to tabi'ah, nature. Yeah. It's referred to the nature? Yeah. Every person will act in accordance with his Shakira, his tabi'ah, and his elemental nature. Yeah. Uh, and this is important to know because it helps, it helps us be recognized if someone is naturally introverted. You're, you're not going to help them by forcing them to be something they're not. You just want to give them the proper guidance for how they can stay how they are, but in a way that reflects good character. Right? So we'll just begin with the first couple of sections here, and then we'll probably close. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, has said, I have been given nobility of character. And in a narration, I have been sent to perfect noble character. Now, I love this hadith because uh, in the Arabic, he says, 
I have only been sent to perfect or to complete the noble qualities of character. So there's two really beautiful points you can derive from this hadith. Point number one, when the Prophet ﷺ says, innama, what does innama mean? It is hasr, right? It is a, it is a restriction. It's as if he's saying, I have only been sent. So the purpose of his bi'tha, right? Of course it is to call people to Allah. And calling people to Allah includes worshipping Allah alone and avoiding false gods, false deities, idols and whatnot. But it also means worshipping Allah in the way that is pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. And that is reflected in Makarim al-Akhlaq, a beautiful character. No, because he says, Inna bu'ithtu. He's not saying, I'm the only one sent to do this. He's saying, I, I was only sent to do this. That's the first point. So the entire message of Tawheed, the entire message, uh, all of the teachings, ibadat and mu'amalat, ruhaniyat, all of this, is supposed to bring a person to good character. Yeah. So if a person is learning these things, but it doesn't improve their character, or they t- become worse in their character, something is wrong with them. Right? It's supposed to lead to that. Right? So that's the first point. The second point, he says, لِأُتَمِّمَ مَكَارِبًا أَخْلَقٍ he says uh, to complete or perfect noble character. This is profound because he does not say He doesn't say I have only been sent to uh, establish or found good character. When he says it means it was already there from before. It's already there from before, but it has deviated and swerved and become imbalanced in certain areas. So to, for it to be completed and perfected, that's a part of his mission. This means that a person can become a Muslim, and before their Islam, they had good character in, in many ways. But it had to be completed, it had to be perfected. It doesn't mean they became Muslim and had zero good character, and that they only got it when they became a Muslim. It doesn't mean that humanity did not have an understanding of what good character is. But they latch on to one thing or the other. It falls into uh, imbalance. And he comes and completes it, perfects it, reestablishes it, brings it into the proper balance. So this tells us that a person can have good character even before their Islam. It tells us that there's, there's a common knowledge shared about what good character entails, right? In another hadith, the Prophet wasallam says that nasu khayruhum fil khayruhum fil islam Right? The, the people are like minds 
They're like mines of gold and silver. And the scholars say that by saying mines and gold and silver, it's not, uh, it's not hasr here. It means that people are like mines. There's like mines of gold and silver. There's also coal mines. And the, uh, the best of people in jahiliyyah are the best of people in Islam uh, when they gain detailed knowledge of the deen. So a person who has good character, their elemental nature is, is good and they have good character, then they become even better when they become Muslim, provided they learn their deen, right? And this is also beautiful because it means that uh, although a person becomes Muslim and their sins are forgiven, it's not a complete blank slate, right? They're still who they are. So if they're good before Islam, inshallah, they become good Muslims and they, they perfect their character, provided they learn the deen. And if they don't have good character before Islam, and they become Muslim, inshallah they improve their character, but it's going to take a little more. But they have to learn, right? You see Sahab who became Muslim, who had good character before Islam, and their character became even better. You see Sahaba who became Muslim, who didn't have the best character before Islam, and they became better, right? It's always a work in progress. But if you have that potentiality even before Islam, it can be enhanced provided you learn your deen. And that's, uh, that's some of what is indicated in this second hadith that he mentions here. So inshallah we'll stop here. And uh, so the next class we'll just be talking about character. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll share with you the, um, the four element stuff and how it reflects character. I think we did. I have the slides. Yeah, we have the slides. Yeah. I think it was before COVID, so I don't think it's, it, was, it wasn't recorded on video. I think it was audio. So someone might have it somewhere in their phone. I don't have it anymore. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. We use Winnie the Pooh as our example because uh, the author of Winnie the Pooh uses each character to reflect a certain temperament. All right. So if, if the phlegmatic one is the one who's happiest, relaxing and eating, who do you think is the phlegmatic character in Winnie the Pooh? It's, it's Winnie the Pooh. If the melancholic is the, the introverted, isolated, kind of, they, they may not even be depressed, but people think, oh, why are they so sad? That's Eeyore, right? And then Tigger is the, the sanguine. The rabbit is the choleric because he's kind of bossy, right? Uh, and the, the author of Winnie the Pooh was a Christian. And according to uh, some writings, he represented Christopher Robbins, which is the boy, uh, as the perfection of all of these elements, which he, of course, sees in the person of, of Jesus Christ, the Prophet Isa. We would say that is the person of the Prophet. But you see, that has that meaning is found even with other traditions. They 
they look at these ideals and they look at the different aspects of human nature. Khair, inshaAllah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.